Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I am very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. My conversation today is with Brian Rosen, chairman of InvestBev. Brian has an amazing story in the beverage business and the adult beverage business. And part of that includes growing brands, incubating brands, and also investing in whiskey barrels, which I didn't even know was an investment category. But the returns that Brian's been able to achieve in that business and his other business has been incredible. And that's all because his foundation started really behind the counter, as he described it, in a family liquor business. And eventually he got control of that business, grew it to well over 100 million, sold it to private equity. We talk about the sale of his liquor business to private equity and why the outcome was great, but he didn't like operating under that model. We talk everything about where the beverage business is today, what beverages are interesting to invest in, early career mistakes, how he thinks about strategy in his business, and (laughs) how an overnight success can take 20 years, and the power of celebrity in fueling a lot of these beverage brands that you see today. 
The other thing we talk about is raising capital for beverage business, how he structures those deals, and his advice on young for young entrepreneurs in the space of beverage and fundraising and investing. And we also go into the cannabis market and how that's now making a push for beverage. Please enjoy my conversation today with Brian Rosen. I thought a good place to start would be how you got into the beverage business. You've talked about this before, but I'd like to hear the story because I think what you're doing is very different and unique from a lot of the beverage investment opportunities, the beverage deals that I've seen. Any investment opportunity. Any investment opportunity. Yeah. Well, it's it's the typical immigrant story, right? It's it's, you know, my grandfather came over to the US with a goat and five dollars and, you know, turned it into half a billion dollars of of value. We were a, a Russian immigrant family. And my grandfather, by way of Boston via Brooklyn, ended up in Chicago in some somehow, some way. And we, and that's another thing, by the way, the, the old timers don't have great history records. They don't keep records. They don't, they don't converse. These, the older generation, my father's father and my father, they don't tell a lot of stories about the old days. A lot of it's because of depression and probably the depression, not depression, yep. you know, but maybe both. Probably both. Yeah. And. So my grandfather came over here and somehow got into the produce business, apples, celery, produce, and was trying to make a living and making a good go of it. But he kept going bust. He kept going bankrupt. And he didn't understand. He knew how to sell. And so it came to to his bright idea that don't sell something that perishes, that goes bad. And then you scratch your head and you're like, well, what can I sell that doesn't go bad? What can I sell that has no expiration date? Well, booze, you know? And so it was booze. And first it was illegally booze via speakeasies and the like. And then when Prohibition ended in 1933, Al Capone was a a patron, I guess, of one of my grandfather's speakeasies and and said, hey, we're going to give licenses out in Chicago. It's going to be under the auspice of the city will give out licenses but I'm giving out these licenses, Sam Rosen, would you like one? And in his thick Russian, you know, Bulgarian, Ukrainian accent, uh, sure, of course. And that became a saloon. And a saloon is an old time word for tavern, which is an old time word for bar. And that became the biggest bar in Chicago in the day, the longest, as my father would tell it, it's the longest elongated, the most elongated bar in Chicago. So 150 seats all in a straight line. Wow. There are pictures somewhere for sure. And my grandfather would service the bar as well as other people. And my grandmother would walk around with a bat like on her hip, making sure people paid. And it was a bar and it cast checks and for like a nickel fee, you know, kind of thing. And I really like old school, like crazy. Out like, of the movie. Yeah, total like, like untouchable type shit. Yeah. And my father, my grandfather died when I was 12 and my father the business was growing. My father was in the army. He left the army to go help my grandfather run this burgeoning operation. And that became Sam's of Chicago. And that became Sam's nationally. And by the time I got a hold of it, it was doing about 28 million in revenue. And then when I sold it, it was doing north of a hundred million when I was 32. 
or so. So that's how I got in the business. I was, I mean, I went to undergrad and I went to grad school. I did all those things. But while my friends were going to the islands for the holidays, I was going to work every holiday, every New Year's, every Christmas, every 4th of July, et cetera. And now I'm in your seat. What were the things that you learned from your grandfather and your father that enabled you to go from 28 to 100 million? That's a great question. I don't know if I learned anything from them aside from kind of the standard pat answer, which would be how to work my ass off. And, you know, about entrepreneurship and about creating. My grandfather and my my father were not great at looking at bigger picture stuff. They were always great at looking right in front of them. So I didn't know my grandfather that well. I was young, he was old, and my father never fostered like this. Let's all get together for Thanksgiving and talk about our families. Yep. That wasn't a that wasn't a thing. So I learned by watching. I was never taught ever. And a lot of gener- a lot of people my age weren't. They you learn by watching. And so I'd watch my dad work his ass off. And I'd watch my dad get up at four o'clock every day, rain or shine, rain or shine, winter, summer, and go to work. And I'd watch my father go to work every Sunday until he was in his 60s. Imagine that. And well past his centimillionaire status every Sunday, no matter what. And that's what I learned from my great gift from my father was that or the great gift he gave me, I should say, was that. And it was a, an ability to be a communicator. My wife would say otherwise, but ability to be a communicator, to read the room, which is like the most valuable business lesson I could ever share. Read the room, know your audience, be able to you know, float between kings and paupers the same. And that was the gift. And I've probably never said that. That was probably the gift where where to treat the poor and the rich alike, because you don't know where you are in that spectrum, treat everyone the same going up as coming down. And those gifts are things I still use today. The ability to network and the ability to connect and be able to communicate a thought and a process and a message. And I think, look, I've got an MBA from University of Chicago. Great. I've learned more in five years on the trucks at work than I ever learned um, about my long run Phillips curve or regression analysis work at in grad school. When you came into the business, did you struggle with coming <laughs> into a family business that like had were set in their ways? Because a lot of third generation businesses fail. That's this typical stereotype. Like 78% fail. Yeah. Yeah, a huge amount. Did I struggle? Of course. Anyone, and it wasn't the kind of business where we weren't a corp, we were great revenue, but not great infrastructure. So it was a lot done from a little. And so did I struggle? hundred percent. No one showed me. It's all learn and error, learn and error, learn by mistake, trial by fire. Yeah, I struggled, of course. And there were plenty of days when I would cry and be upset and, you know, fuck this place, I'm out, yep. you know, kind of thing. Plenty. And I remember specific, this is, I feel like I'm on therapy. Um, do you have a, a, I need a therapy. Do you want a tissue? You have a prescription? We can, um, no, no. I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to go deep. I mean, this is where, I mean, I am asking the question because I'm partners with my dad. And actually, when I came into the business, things were very different than they are today. And there were a lot of struggles. So yeah. I can and, only and, imagine. 
So again, it's, you know, my dad never taught me. It's always taught by watch. Never taught. And and as a father now of a 23-year-old and a 19-year-old, whatever, a younger one, I don't, I try and be better than all of that because our generation, I think I'm older than you, but our generation collectively needs to, you have to be better at, at the soft skills, parenting, communication, emoting, those kind of things we have to be better at, not only as leaders in business, but in our personal lives. And when I came into the business, it was, <laughs> I came to work my first day in a tie and like loafers. And I got mocked incessantly because they're like, you're standing behind a counter selling liquor. What, you know, literally like behind a counter. And, um, you know, your number one, your most regular customer is a guy buying a half pint of VO for two ninety nine, And he shits in his pants and he lives <laughs> in the streets, you know, take the tie off. You know, and so I, so while all my friends were going to work for public accounting firms or starting out in their law careers or what have you, you know, I was embarrassingly behind the counter of a liquor store and I, it came to be very valuable to me, but at the time it was very hard, very hard. And what made it also very hard was that as just coming out of undergrad, all my friends were, were going to concerts on Saturdays and partying on the weekends. And I couldn't do any of it because I was working. I worked till nine o'clock or 10 o'clock on Friday nights. I had like an eight to five shift on a Saturday and then I was exhausted. So I didn't go out. And then if I had to work Sundays, you know, so my social life suffered. So I was always straddling this, do I want to be here moment? And, and what does it all mean thing? And, and, and it, it carried on, gosh, to my late thirties, you know, it was not easy for sure. And what changed at that point? So when did you realize that maybe you didn't have to be behind the counter or did you always have to be behind the counter in that business? Well, I pushed myself away from that. You know, I, you, you know, I'm part of a couple groups that have broadened my horizons back then, YPO being one of them, Tiger 21 as well. EO, there's a lot of groups like that. And I broadened my horizons. My only lens to the world was my family. You know, it was very, very narrow. So I realized that, hey, family businesses that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue should have a board, not the, the father and the son and the son talking about the business over pizza. There should be a board. There should be outside counsel. You, you should have a plan, a business plan. You should have goals. Otherwise, you're just, you're so, you're firefighting all day and then New Year's Eve comes and then you start over at $0 revenue. You know, and so we had none of those things. So I got into YPO in, in 2004 and I was 34 and I opened my eyes to other family business folks that had boards, that had outside counsel, that had family business therapists. Have you heard of that? Yep. That's a whole scam, you know, <laughs> family business therapists and, and guidance and counseling and mediation and all these things I never knew about, never. So I tried to bring some of that in. And along that same route of enlightenment, I'm like, I'm better served away from the counter. Like I'm better served thinking about the business than selling a half pint to the guy for $2.99. See, I did that full circle. Yep. I and like that. yeah, I'm here to help. And my value is in thinking broadly about business, not 
necessarily specifically about this piece. And so I began through much consternation and a ton of ugliness in the family. Said, fuck it, I'm gonna, we have offices here. We've got 180 employees. I'm gonna go in an office and I'm going to think about the business. And that's where we started to really elevate our game from this 30, 40, $50 million range to the hundreds. When I could network and think and, and get creative about how we're not a liquor store, we're a, dest- we're a tourist attraction. We are a destination for people trying to evade their local taxes, their liquor taxes, which are exorbitant, right? So that means we should play, we were in Chicago, so we should play in, in Ohio and Michigan and Indiana because people will come here to save $1.50 on a half gallon of doers and they'll drive 300 miles to do it. So why don't we market in those states? And when we do things like that, we were the first liquor store to sell online. That didn't happen by mistake. That happened because I was taking a carry out from behind the counter to someone's car that had a University of Illinois computer bumper sticker. Com- University of Illinois computer science uh, department bumper sticker on their car. And I said, hey, are you doing that internet stuff? This is a 96. Wow. You know, are you doing that internet thing? It's like, yeah, well, Mark and Reason, which is where Netscape was, you know, the older, older, younger people don't know Netscape from anything, but the, the, the grandfather of web browsers. Mark Andreessen is a graduate here, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, can you build us a website? Well, it's going to cost you. Uh, I got to ask my dad for money. How much? $2,000. <laughs> I'll pay it myself. And we did. And, and our first website was a PDF of our inventory. That's what it was. It was a logo and the P and you could click here to download inventory. And then they would fax orders into my apartment. True story. They'd fax orders wow. into my apartment in Chicago. So every morning when I would get up, I'd have orders and I'd bring them to the store and I'd ship them from there. So those are all kind of things that I was able to work on that had nothing to do with behind the counter. And it was more about expanding the business from the macro sense. And, and to my father's credit, who is now 87 or so, to my father's credit, he didn't putz with me too much. He let me do the things I wanted to do because they turned into revenue. You know, it wasn't, I would, let's do a, a car wash that uses booze. It wasn't that, it was, hey, let me create a wine club a subscription model where you're guaranteed 300 grand a month in revenue and you'll have a nutrition rate of 41%, but you'll keep getting more people. Let me create that for us. A Sam's Wine and Spirits monthly order, mail order. Let, let's create a wine club for the Wall Street Journal, which we did. You know, let's create a partnership with 1-800-Flowers. So every time someone bought flowers, red roses, we could send a bottle of rosé or champagne with it. Those kind of things, a lot of it through YPO and the relationships I made there, but that's what I was able to do when I pushed myself away from the counter. Looking back on that, do you think there's tremendous opportunity in businesses that don't change a lot, maybe that are heavily regulated to change them by relating them or taking ideas from other businesses? So for example, I assume all of these liquor stores were doing the same thing as you were doing previously, which is selling booze. They weren't doing wine clubs. They weren't doing this. You couldn't point to Total Wine back then and say, oh, wow, those are great ideas. Let's do them in my store. You had to bring those ideas from somewhere else. Yeah. And and funny Total Wine because they tried to buy us because of these ideas. Same with BevMo on the West Coast. The problem with new American businesses like liquor stores or clothing, apparel, schmanti, right? Textile or other generational businesses is that 
oftentimes the founders or second gen, they have good success. And so it ain't broke, right? Dad gets to golf on the weekends. The kids live in good houses and have cars. The kids live a better life than the parents before them. So there's not a strong impetus to change. And because you're in a family business, you're not always looking around at competition and saying, look who's coming. So family businesses die in comfort. You know, I was never comfortable. And still to this day, and what we've created now, I'm always with a, you know, I was watching this morning, like on Instagram, some of the last dance from Michael Jordan. And and one of the things that one of the clips was Magic Johnson talking about Michael Jordan and about the playoffs the year after the Bulls won. And what Magic Johnson said is, we want what they have and we're going to go get it. We're going to go take it. And they, they lost in the playoffs and never got there. But the, the point is that you, you can never rest no matter what place you're in. And these family businesses that are generational tend to rest. They don't look around the corner because they're making a great living. Before you know it, they're out of business. And I don't know if you've heard of BlackBerry. You know, you, yep. you, you can't, you've heard. You, you can't, I used to have one. Yeah, well, I, I used to have multiple. <laughs> Not only was it BlackBerry, but it was, and you had to have a server and a, yep. like you had to go through like, like an AS400 or some kind of crazy, you know, oh, it had a name for it, but it was a, like a, you had to push to your, it was horrible, you know, and that's so, they thought they had the world covered and they did for a hot minute until, until they quit thinking everyone was a threat. So in family business, especially generational ones, they don't think of everyone else as a threat. They look at their own universe and say, hey, we're good. And that's the quickest way to dinosaur it out. What value did the board bring? Did you form a board? I wasn't allowed. I formed a bunch of advisors to me personally, Brian. And they collectively knew I was getting fucked, you know? And I had no, I didn't have the proper exit in ready. And so, you know, that's when we, I began thinking about selling the business. I went and wrote a, a business plan. Let me take a step back. We could have gone on forever to this day still and made a great living, all of us. The problem with that is that we, as a family business, led by my father, for the most part, we didn't have expertise that were, that were experts. We had what we thought were experts, which was us, but it wasn't expertise. And you look around and competition is coming from every corner and people are managing their capital better and managing their inventory better and all of these things. And so it go, it's kind of goes back to that. Oh, we're fine. We're good. And we weren't. And so I'm taking a survey of everything and I'm looking around the, the world and I'm saying, Hey, we've got a line of credit. That's, that's huge that I'm personally guaranteeing for. We have competition coming from places that never sold beverage before CVS, Walgreens, there's an internet beverage movement, right? Wine.com didn't exist when we made all our money. None of that stuff existed. And Walgreens didn't sell liquor for 40 years. CVS didn't exist. So this is all coming and they're coming on our block. We had stores all over. They're coming on our block. They're coming next door to our store. So the person that would come to me for a six pack of beer or two bottles of wine, instead of fighting my parking lot and my traffic, they'd go three blocks earlier, maybe pay a buck more, but they'd get in and out in a hot minute and get toothpaste. You know, 
And so that's the reality of it. So all those ancillary purchases, all those pickup purchases were gone. So I saw this and I wrote a pitch book uh, through help from YPO and my, my, my forum and went looking for private equity firms to buy my company and to retain me as CEO and buy out the rest of the family. And that's exactly what I did. That's exactly what happened. Was it more about gaining expertise or buying out the family? It was about, if you believed in the business, it was about getting partners that wanted to grow the company. You can't stay stagnant because everyone else is growing around you. So at some point, it's really cute to be Joe's Stone Crab in Miami, your one store. But even Joe said, we need to get more of the country. Right. You know, because there's a lot of great restaurants in Miami and we're losing share of wallet. So now you're in Vegas and you're in Chicago and you're out and you're in Dallas, you're elsewhere. That's no, not so dissimilar. We were one store, the, our biggest store was doing 70, $80 million a year, but we were one store. So eventually the guy from Indiana is not going to need us. Eventually the guy who's buying $100,000 in Bordeaux is going to go to Wally's in California. And say, forget Sam's. I don't want to pay for shipping. You know, so we either had to get better or get out. And so I tried to do both at the same time. What's it like to operate in a highly regulated environment? It's no problem if you follow the rules. You know, if you don't, you're going to get caught eventually. Liquor business is unusual because there's regulations that other businesses don't have. For instance, got to be 21 to sell, right? So you're relying on every customer that comes to you via the web or otherwise is honest about their age. That doesn't happen. You've got to, there's all sorts of taxing bodies that take a piece of your of your profit. And if they don't get paid, they'll, they'll, they'll commandeer your license. You know, your, your license to print money is what a liquor license is. So I'm no, no different now. I'm in a very regulated environment now with the SEC. I think regulations are fine if you play by the rules. Reg rules become a problem when you break them. When you were bought by private equity, did everything that you imagined would happen, happen? No, nothing happened that I imagined. It sucked. And I'll tell you how I knew it, it was going to suck. So I had this vision in my mind that was, hey, we're going to take all this capital in, which we did. I'm going to sell 80% of my company and keep 20%, which I did. And I'm going to send to CEO from COO, which I did. And we're going to fucking kill it. We're going to open stores, two, three stores a year. We should be doing six, $700 million revenue annually three years after acquisition. And that was my plan. And I wrote that plan down. And that's the plan I sold. So I believed it. I wrote it. I researched it. I modeled it. And I'm at the closing dinner. This is a true story. And I knew I was hosed right away. I'm at the closing dinner. We closed the transaction. I got a big fat wire. All good. Everyone got wires. Everyone's like, it was, we're all friends again, the family. And funny how money can do that. And I'm at the closing dinner at a restaurant in Chicago called Rosebud Steakhouse on Walton Street. And the bill was about nine, $10,000 for dinner. It was my leadership team couple of my buddies, my wife, the private equity firm and their, and their deal team. And the bill came. 
and it's sitting in the middle of the table and it's just sitting there and sitting there. And, you know, you have alligator arms, you know, you know, and finally I say, well, thanks guys. I'm going to go home now. I'm exhausted. Tomorrow's a new day for us collectively. And the, the managing director of the firm is like, what about the bill? I'm like, huh? I got to pay for my own closing dinner. He's like, either Brian, you pay for it or we'll pay for it and bill you back. And I knew right away I was fucked. I, I, it just, it was a horrible feeling. I knew I'd made a mistake. And maybe I'm being a little dramatic about it now, grandiose, but it, but people will show you who they are. And I'd never seen that before. And so that was my first experience with like, hey, this, this ain't right. You know. Looking back on it, were there other things that might've been warning signs? Yes, but I'm looking through the lens of a deal guy. I wanted to get a deal done. The same way you look, if you're dating someone, you look past some of the, some of the baloney because you're dating someone and you want to get going with that. I looked past things that I would recognize today at 53 years old that I didn't recognize at 32, 34. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were warning signs. I just didn't, I would have picked a different firm I would have picked a firm that had more retail experience. I would have picked a firm that had CPG in their portfolio and had shared resources that I that I could take advantage of. I didn't do any of that. I just picked the firm who was willing to close a deal. And I paid for it. I paid for it. I mean, lesson learned. Luckily, you know, one thing I've learned as I've round as I'm like on the back nine of life is that, and people don't think this when they're young you've got three or four different acts in life. Opening act, mid, late mid, closing, right? And so I was only in my first or second act. You don't know it at the time. You don't think about it at the time. But looking back now through today's lens, that was a blip on the overall life radar. You know, it really was. But you don't, at the time, every move seems crazy. And I would like, you know, I my, my daughter's, in college, sophomore in college, and everything is huge. Everything is major, right? Everything. And I'll say, Coco, nothing will matter. Your sorority sisters, the day after graduation, it's going to be alpha who? You know, you know, try Delta, huh? Like no one, these are not lifelong things for the majority of people. And I learned that, but it was not an easy lesson at all. So, What's the takeaway from that then? Like, what would you say to a younger YPO person that there's greener pastures ahead? This is just one notch in your career. I mean, life's a long time, you know, and business life is a long time. And so there's not many mistakes that you can't come back from if you are stick to it, right? If you keep to it. And this goes back to, you know, what I learned from my dad, the greatest lesson was to keep grinding keep pushing because you don't know, you know, every wall has something behind it. So you keep kind of plowing through them. And, and look, I've, I was lecturing last week, uh, adjunct at UM at the Herbert school. And one of the things I tried to convey to the, the, the newly minted MBAs was you have, and you will make mistakes. And those mistakes are the ones that are defining the wins are easier. The mistakes are the ones that, that 
that really make you long-term the person you are and and the success or failure that you are. It's how you kind of go through that wall. And 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 what I, what would I tell a young a younger Brian or a younger person going through these things? I mean, obviously vet your and there's more information now too. So I'm, I was a little disadvantaged, you know, in the information world. But but interview vet what check verify but check or check but verify measure but verify. Yep. Measure twice, cut once. Those kind of things are they're not just catchy phrases. Those are real things. And my mistake was I was blinded by getting a deal done, not cognizant of who I got the deal done with. And in hindsight, if I would have been a little slower paced, I would have had a better deal done. But my life would have turned out differently too, as I sit here today. How has the selling of liquor and beverage evolved since selling the business to private equity, staying in and running it for a little bit to now. Like oh my God. Now you're not, we haven't talked about what you're doing now, but you're not still selling liquor directly. Not so directly, no. talk no. about that transition and what's changed. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And I think I'm a little bit of a, um, you know, the, Walter Mitty, like a dreamer, right? Yeah. I just, I, I don't know. I pulled that name out of my, the back of my head. I'm That's not great. Sure. I don't know where it came That's from. That's a good one. No, but I haven't used it. it probably, I haven't used that name <laughs> in 10 years. It just came out. So kudos to me. <laughs> um, but I'm a, I'm a little bit, I mean, I, I like to think I'm, I like to think, so this is going to come across a little bit arrogant, but there's not a lot of ways to get through some of these things. I like to think I'm the smartest guy in the room. And I like to think I'm the smartest guy in this category. So, I never really say it can't be done. I always say, how can we do? It's a mindset. And when I, so I sold the business, I stayed on for a year and a half or so. It was not going well. I resigned. And through YPO, I met someone at Pricewaterhouse, Coopers and PwC. And he asked me to, would I be interested in helping on the adult beverage division at Pricewaterhouse? So what do I know about anything? I don't know shit. It's like, well, we just need a guy who's done it. Okay, great. So oh, you mean a show pony? <laughs> Here I am. So, but that turned into a multi-year career and eventually making partner at Price Waterhouse in the adult beverage division, which I was really grateful for, but I was really not qualified, nor did I enjoy. It was lately the last time I wore a tie. But I knew in looking at the adult beverage industry, I knew it just couldn't be retail. I knew there had to be a way to blend professional finance with retail, with consulting, and do it profitably. And so when I left Price Waterhouse, I founded a company called BevStrat. Still not in finance. It was a sales and marketing company that focused on the independent brands. And the logic was that there are 50,000 brands in the country that are registered with the government for COLA or TTB license. And only 500 account for repetitive skew velocity. Only 500. Think about those odds. 49,500 fail. So I'm like, well, why do they fail? And then you go into your little cocoon. You're like, well, they fail because no one's buying them and no one's selling them. Because the distributors, back to regulation, the distributors need to sell the 500 because that keeps their lights on. But the other 49,000 and change need to exist to show breadth of selection in the industry. I think I'll put my I'll put my cart on the five on the fifty thousand that fail or the forty nine and change. 
I'll put my cart there. And I created a sales company that employed independent salespeople around the country to sell booze. They'd go around with their proprietary app we created and go into liquor stores and say, hey, I represent XYZ, would you like a case? And they would sell it and they would enter the order into their iPhone or iPhone 10 or nine or whatever it was back then. And, and it would come to our offices for compliance check and then go to the distributor for delivery. I grew that company to multi-millions of dollars. And then I sold that company to a private equity firm too. And this time I keep getting smarter. So instead of getting equity, I sold 75% of the company to a private equity firm. But instead of getting equity, keeping 25%, I sold that too in exchange for equity in the parent company. So smarter move. Instead of being solely beholden to the private equity firm, I made it so that I was unfireable for three years. Smarter move. Learning, right? Learning, learning, learning. And that was Bevstrat, which I sold and monetized. And I subsequently bought back for a dollar three years later. I think Portnoy did that too. He bought back Barstool for a buck. Yeah, I want to hear this story. From Penn Gaming. How does it happen? Well, here's the lucky part of the whole thing. And luck is, you know, let's be honest. Luck is a lot. I sold the company. I closed the transaction in January of 2019. In March of 2020, there was some sort of global event. I'm not sure. Do you recall? COVID. So think about it like this. I'm a liquor company, wine and spirit beer company that sells goods and 50% of the market is closed. Bars, bars and restaurants closed. Yep. Liquor stores open because they're essential business, like gas stations and hospitals right. for some fucked up reason, right? Liquor stores open. <laughs> so I never would have made it through COVID if I didn't sell the company. Never, ever. Because it was up to the new co to fund it. And, and, I, and they just bought the company, so they had to fund, they couldn't write it down so quickly super lucky. And that, but at the end, at the end of COVID and when my employment agreement was up, I had the decision to stay on as, and I already started in Vespev at the time. So I was kind of like moonlighting, if you will. What side hustle? Like side a, hustle. Yeah, but it's a big side hustle. hundred million dollar side hustle. Yeah. And, and I, so I bought it back for a buck. In fact, if I look at the transaction correctly, they may have even paid me because I got to keep the cash in the bank which is about $250,000. I paid him a buck for tax purposes and I got, the, I got the treasury account and the company. How did the negotiation come about? They said, we don't want it anymore? No. I said to them, because InvestBev was rolling hard. And I said to them, I don't want to renew my employment agreement. And they said, you realize if, we, if you leave, We'll turn the comp- we won't run the company the same way. In fact, we may not have the company anymore. Okay, it's yours. And so through negotiation, it was just given, it was like, we don't want it either. And I got it back. And then I negotiated for the treasury and forgiveness of debt and liability and all those kind of things. But learning, I, I mean, and the ability to not blink in a staring contest. Also something I could never do as a kid, like not blink in a staring contest. It's not about who says the most, about who listens the most in these negotiations. And the first time I did a lot of talking, this time I did a lot of listening. Different transaction. At the same time I founded Bevstrat, I founded InvestBev, our fund one. And now, we're, you know, here we are in fund five. Was seven years later, eight years later, almost nine. What's InvestBev? InvestBev is now the largest 
equity firm in the country only focused on booze and, and some weed, but, and properly stated, adult beverage and cannabis. And we are, our main office is Chicago. We employ 20 people or so, professional investment and financial advisors. And we invest in raw distillate, which is the stuff that makes the stuff in whiskey and brown spirits. And we invest in brands and support services. So I was driving up here today and, and this, you're very close to a Fort Lauderdale distributor that I know. And I'm like, well, this feels like a good time to stop in there and, and, you know, ask that they want to be sold. So support services, so websites, reserve bars, speakeasy, brands like Four Pines Beer or Nomadica Winery or Siempre Tequila, uh, can cannabis beverage, and then distillate, which is the barrels of raw whiskey in Kentucky, Ireland, Scotland, and elsewhere. We're going to get into all of that. I think maybe where I want to go now is how has, you said only 500 brands are successful. Yeah. Two come to mind of these crazy stories. Casamigos and Aviation. Tito's. Yeah. That'd be another one, right? Took them 20 years though. People don't know that. It was an overnight success that took 20 years. So how does that work? How does an overnight success take 20 years? Because all of a sudden you start hearing about it. And I'm in the hospitality business and everyone's wanting Tito's. And it feels like there was a momentum that was unstoppable. Yeah. But it was always around. I guess I just never knew about it. No, people started wanting Tito's when people couldn't get Svedka. That's what it was. Tito's was Tito Beverage, who I know relatively well, was working the Texas countryside with his dog and his guitar. Good old boy, folksy story kind of thing. But 20 years, 20 years of bleeding money, 20 years of humping and pushing. And all of a sudden, you know, there was a movement and I'm not sure where the groundswell started, but American made became something. You know, so think about it. You had Ciroc, you had Svetka, you had Stoli, you had Absolute. Those were the vodkas, Grey Goose, Belvedere. Not one is from America. Yep. So he played on that sentiment, American made. And then he played on the sentiment of handcrafted, which is a riff on what the craft beer movement did a couple of years before. Everyone got excited about Pete's Wicked Ale and Sam Adams and Goose Island and all these things that are no longer around. And I can go on and on with those things. Handcrafted, craft made with love. It's all bullshit. And, and Tito put on his label, handcrafted. And if you remember years later, there was a lawsuit that said, this is not hand, it was a class action. Really? Oh yeah. This is, it was a class action. This is not handcrafted. You're making it in a still, you're making 5,000 bottles a day. It's not handcrafted. And that was the marketing thing, right? And so, so of course, class actions are kind of always full of shit, but it was some group, some class of people saying, you sold me that it was handcrafted and it wasn't. It was machine made, you know? And that was settled out of court as they always are. But, but it, 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 it wasn't overnight. It wasn't, what was overnight was Clooney. What was overnight was Ryan Reynolds. What was, was overnight was Emily Ratajkowski and Babe Rosé. Those are overnights. But Tito... That man struggled. He 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 went through the he went through the brick wall a bunch of times. How do you distinguish then Casamigos from Tito's? Is it all just marketing now? Is that how you win? Pure marketing, not taste, not the story. It's just the marketing. Casamigos is interesting because it was the first celebrity brand, the public celebrity brand, right? So and so, so and so, a lister may have had a stake in 
X brand, but Clooney was out there doing it. And Randy Gerber created distribution through W Hotels and his clubs. The key to any brand being successful is having distribution. So if Randy Gerber takes your tequila and makes it on his drink menu, and he's serving a thousand people a night nationally, or more, I'm sure more, you are, you have automatic velocity already. Got it. Clooney was the first. But I would ask you this. Can you name for me five tequila brands owned by celebrities right now? Yeah. Can you name 10? I don't know. That'd be tough. Okay. I'm sure they exist though, right? There's 62. Yeah. So here's the point is that the day is coming to an end because a celebrity can sell a bottle once. He can't sell it twice if the juice is bad. But Casamigos is good juice, but it's all branding because they don't have their own distillery. They don't have their own guy on a donkey making agave. You know, it's all done in the same factory as 10 other tequilas. It's so a, is a, there any bad juice in, in the celebrity market? Like how are some of these- It's all the same juice. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same shit. Same so with, how same, do you win? Same with the bourbon market. Better marketing, more runway, more cash. The bourbon market's no different. There are 4,000, listen to this stat, this will blow your mind. There's 4,000 bourbon brands in the USA. There's only 400 distilleries. How does that happen? I mean, logically, how does that happen? That means that the other 3,600 are buying from contract distillers. It's the same juice. And they may put their spin on it, light it on fire or put rose petals in there or cinnamon or yoga mats, whatever, right? They like fireball, but they, they do all, they do all these things, but it's the same juice. It, 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 fundamentally, it's the same four ingredients, water, grain, corn, wheat. Okay. It feels a little bit like everyone getting into crypto in 21, 22. Like what is the opportunity in beverage right now? Because when you have 62 celebrity brands, it doesn't seem like an opportunity. It just seems like the most famous star or the one with the most distribution is going to win. I mean, that's why you see Mark Wahlberg like yeah. in hotels. Yeah, trying Mark to Wahlberg or Kendall Jenner behind a bar in Indiana. I saw on Instagram or Mark Wahlberg at a freaking Costco <laughs> hugging babies and buying, you know, buying meat. That's why, because the only way to win is to keep pushing. The guys that sign their names to things but don't aren't involved the Wiz Khalifas of the world and others, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart's not out there. You can push it on Instagram all you want, but you got to be where the customer is. I remember back in the Sam's days, Bruce Willis had a something, a, a bottles, a cooler or some sort of drink in some way. He would actually come to the store and sign bottles. Even like B and C list celebrities are behind tables. Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad, who's not a B or C, so... For those of you at home, Brian Cranston goes to liquor stores and signs bottles, does appearances. That's where the rubber meets the road. There'll be a big shakeout in 2024. And you can mark today as, as learning this, that there'll be a, a thinning of the herd in the celebrity brand category. We at InvestBev just invested in Thomas Ashburn Craft Spirits, which is Sarah Jessica Parker, Neil Patrick Harris, Vanessa Hudgens, from High School Musical fame and others, Rosario, Dors Rosario Dawson, they're all now partners with us. And they're out there doing their thing. What better match than a Sarah Jessica Parker and a Cosmo 
What better match than Neil Patrick Harris and espresso martini? Authenticity matters. So when you've got JLo endorsing a drink and she's a known non-drinker and she's married to a reformed alcoholic, it was a, a catastrophic marketing mistake. And for some reason, everyone yes manned it all the way up the totem pole and it failed. And there are a lot of things like that. Angelina Jolie and, and Brad Pitt and their rosé. It, it's got to be authentic. That's what's going to be the differentiator in capital, of course, between a successful celebrity brand and a bullshit one. You've got, there was just a launch of, we actually had a chance to invest. We turned it down, but Pantalontes, which is Matthew McConaughey and his wife, Camilla, and a tequila. And there's a big hubbub about it when it launched. They were running around on motorcycles with no pants. I don't know if you saw it. No. Yeah, it's out there. And that's authentic. He's a Texas guy. Yep. He drinks tequila. He's a little bit irreverent. It makes a lot of sense. But he's in the tequila celebrity game three years after the shark has been jumped. Fact. You know, I hearken back to the happy days. Jump the shark quote. It, celebrity brands tequila, those days are limited for sure. So as you think about opportunities at InvestBev and where you're going to invest money into new brands, are you thinking about completely new categories or investing in brands backed by celebrities? Can a brand survive if it's not backed by a celebrity? Look, a celebrity can sell it once, can't sell it twice. It's got to be good juice. So we back the juice first. Anything else is a plus. What's in the bottle? What's in the can? Whatever. We like the no and low alcohol movement. We think there is a lot of runway there. A lot of people that are more your age than mine and younger are, hey, I'm going to do a drink replacement, right? I'm going to have one drink of booze and one drink of fake, and my night will go on until 3 a.m. and I won't be wasted the next day. Or I'm going to drink weed, drink cannabis beverage, which we are heavily invested in. I think that those are in the what's next bucket. Vodka to me is dead. Tequila is at the tail end of its hyper growth. It will still grow. Mezcal is very hot. Gin has been the next big thing for 20 years. It keeps going ballistic bananas in, in the UK, but has yet to really kill it here. And I like non-elk a lot, non-elk beer. I like what, what Athletic Brewing is doing. And they just got a valuation of six or $700 million. What they're doing is great. It's a great beer that doesn't get you drunk. So is that regulated? No. Does that change your investment thesis at all? 100%. I talked to a guy yesterday who is who created, and I'm not going to mention his name, but he created a website to sell non-alc. And I said, great. How do you, great, because you don't have the three-tier compliance right. and you don't have the UPS and FedEx kind of on your bone, so to speak. But then if you're not, if you don't have compliance issues, then you're really just competing against Amazon and you're going to get hosed. Yeah. Oh, we don't see them as a problem. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I ordered a gift for my wife for Christmas uh, yesterday around 8 a.m. and it arrived around 1130. Yeah, they get, they better figure it out. Amazon, they better get their shit together because that doesn't work for me. This three-hour window gift wrapped, by the way, with a card. Exactly. I mean, what self-respecting anyone will not use that first? And so it's not an investment we're going to make. I, I, 
but the guy is a good guy and he's got a great heart, but it's just not something I can monetize. Then how can you monetize athletic brewing? What like you're now competing against CPG people, which is a much broader investment base. I'll tell you right? how. I'll tell you how. Because the big brands, Anheuser Busch and Miller Coors, need an offering. That's how. They need to buy it to compete in the category. They're in this business, in the adult beverage business in general, there's a buy or build mentality. Much easier to buy than to build. So if they're doing 100 million in sales and have a valuation of 600 million, buy it. Don't build it because you're because you're the big bad monster that makes shitty beer. And Bud Light and Bud and Miller Light and Miller, Athletic Brewing is not tied to you in any way. They're a premium brand in the non-alc sector that's exploding. Buy it. And Athletic Brewing, that was what will happen. Mark my words again today, timestamp this call. And that will happen because they it's much easier to buy something, overpay, than build it and fail. How interested are you in incubating your own brands? You have all this knowledge, you have all the data, you have capital. How much of a strategy is that? So we have a company called Sprout Beverage that is an incubator and accelerator, part of our growth beverage ecosystem. And we, I don't have a ton of interest in creating a brand for all the reasons I said earlier, mainly 95% of them fail. But I do have an interest in helping brands be successful and then the ones that are have the big, biggest shot, we can just buy. So that may be the creation of the brand, but someone else is really doing the hard work there. I want to talk about the distillate, the barrels. Let's do. Because I know a lot about the real estate business, and this strategy seems to me to be very akin to real estate. And I don't think a lot of people know that this happens. So maybe you can kind of break down that side of your business for us. Sure. So seven, so we've, we've raised roughly about a quarter billion dollars between our companies in, in partner money. And part of our strategy is this raw distillate play. 70% of our deployment is in raw distillate. So the, those of you at home, what's raw distillate? So the, all the bourbons anywhere start off with a base spirit, with just the basics. And I'd said earlier, you know, water, wheat, rye, corn, whatever, but it's the basics. And legally in Kentucky, it can't be called bourbon until you get to two to three years of the aging process. And you've got two parties in this process. So one would be the distillery and Bullet, Basil Hayden, Blanton, Snob Creek, whatever, the distillery. And then there's the end user, you know, Pernod Ricard, for instance, or Constellation or Diageo. What we do as part of our strategy is we buy the raw distillate. We buy it from the distillery. We store it on site. We let it mature for two to three years. Then we sell that barrel full of juice, which is now bourbon, to the next user that does what they do to it, set it on fire, whatever, char it, put it in high humidity rickhouse. And then that becomes a brand. So this middle piece is a three to four year window. We play the arbitrage, that middle piece. And, and that's 70% of our, our deployment. And that 70% has re- returned outsized against any other industry because bourbon or the bourbon barrel is finite. If you think about it, you've got, you've got to grow wheat, you've got to grow the grain, whatever it is. You can't, 
There's not an infinite supply. It's limited supply. Yet demand keeps going up. So you've got a supply and demand imbalance. And the barrel accretes in value as time goes on. So you've got people that want it. They can't get it. It has to wait a certain amount of age. And to get it at year four, you have to buy it at year zero. So we buy it at year zero. And so now we become the counterparty. And I don't know if I'm explaining that in an easy to understand way, but but basically I'll do it like this. Concrete. You look at concrete. I don't care whether you're going to make a sidewalk, a street, pool, or a highway. You need concrete. Conversely, I don't care if you're going to make Bullet, Blanton's, Basil Hayden, Knob Creek, Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, whatever. You need the, the, the base. We provide the base. And then they, use, they buy it from us to do whatever they're going to do to it. But that middle piece here is a piece that, that exists and has existed for decades. But it used to be this guy in Kentucky trading with this guy in Kentucky. Now it's InvestBev trading with Pernod Ricard. Why does the middle piece exist though? So why wouldn't the guy making that raw distillate just hang on to it and sell it at a later time? And then conversely, why isn't the end user just buying it and storing it in their little factory? Ding, ding, ding. Key questions I get at every investor pitch meeting I've ever done, ever done in years. Here's why. Distilleries, their main role is to distill. That's what they do. They're not in the buy and hold world. They're cash flow heavy. They need it. And they're making a huge profit anyway. If they if I buy it for a thousand dollars and they and they sell it to me, I'm sorry, if I buy it for a thousand dollars and they make it for five hundred, not bad. Takes them two weeks to do it. Pretty good. It's out of their hands. They're not in the buy and hold. They need the cash. Cash intensive business. Conversely, the end guy, Pernod Ricard, Bullet Bourbon is a great example. At least Bullet Bourbon is an example. Bullet doesn't want to put $20 million to work and not have any benefit from it. Imagine putting $20 million of your own money aside. Yep. Can't get to it. Can't use it. It drains on your personal balance sheet. It's a, it, it, a lot of these are public companies that will have a negative look at board calls. That's why. And so they'd rather pay a premium in year four, but have present day use of their capital now. How many barrels do you control? about $150 million worth. So are you creating some of your own arbitrage? I am. And how does that work? Well, <laughs> that's how it works. Works pretty well. <laughs> we are not artificially stifling the market, if that's, that's another way to ask that question. It seems like by... There's a, <laughs> there's a similar analogy to oil and gas, right? Tell me. Well... You're taking the stuff from the guy making it and holding it. And based on what you're seeing, you can really leverage supply and demand and you can get to a market clearing price that's very efficient. Yeah. But there's one more caveat to this whole thing, it's, which is similar to oil and gas, but does bear noting. There are no bad years of bourbon. There are no off vintages like there are in wine. If I want to go sell a barrel of bourbon in three years and it's a bad market for whatever reason, economy is not great. There's a, there's a supply and demand imbalance is working against me. 
when I, I could not sell it. And then when I go to sell it the next year, it's worth more. It's older. It inherently has more value. And I would, and if you're trying to kind of create an analogy that people understand, use timber as an example. If you're in the foresting business and you're a tree farmer, uh, lumber, if it's a bad year for wood, if housing starts are down, like they are right now, right? Housing starts are down, interest rates are high, two macro factors you can't control if you're in some Oregon forest, Washington state. If you don't chop the tree down next year, you get more tree, right? It's brilliant. For us, if we don't sell a two-year-old or three-year-old because the market is soft, next year we have four-year-old, which fetches a higher price anyway. And there's less of it. Because as the years go on, there becomes less because three years, the golden mark for another brand to take it and do what they're going to do to it. So if you get past the three-year-old mark, it's, the further you get past that, the, the less likely it becomes for a brand to need it as a base spirit because it becomes too expensive to that translates to too high a shelf price at BevMo or wherever, right? So we're in a totally advantageous position owning the asset. Is there an optimal hold period or is that driven by your investment vehicle? Meaning, are you guys thinking about, well, maybe we should hold this five years and not sell it because we're paid such a premium for five-year juice? Yeah. So here, here it, I'm using your terminology. Now, no, sure. I, I appreciate yeah. that. I, people that quote me to me, I really enjoy. <laughs> yes and no. And the yes is it's more valuable and it, you could hold it. The no is there's less buyers for it because it's less, it, the older it gets, the less likely it can be. Look, it's like adopting a kid at, at birth or adopting a kid at 12. Right. Right. The kid at 12 has got his own way already or her own way. Right. They're already got, they're into their personality and all that. You adopt the kid at, at, at zero, you can morph that thing any way you want. I know this is so rude. <laughs> Some parents group's going to write me, but that's kind of the, the same thing, right? It, it's the longer I hold it, the less, the less buyers there are for it. Three years, the optimal time. And that's by the way, by the way, that's a unique thing, a unique thing about our funds is that most private equity funds are 10-year holds. We're not. We've never held till 10 years, ever. And so investors like the fact that it's non-correlated, it's stable, it is uh, recession-resistant historically, and it's, they have a, a feasible timeline of when they're going to get return of capital. I want to talk about how you had the idea to come up with an investment vehicle around this. Sure. Why did you do it like that? How did you do it? Why did you decide the fund model would be the best model for this? It was, again, lucky. Lucky. When I, I had three investments in my first fund, I was alone. Um, no employees, no no nothing. And it was a friends and family kind of thing. So it wasn't typical fund formation. It was, I made three investments. I took $5 million from people and myself and turned it into 15 million in, in like two and a half years. It's a good track record. Oh my God. And Part of it was luck, right? Part of it was one of the businesses I invested in, I found through YPO or they found me. One was the barrel trade and one was a, was a Silicon Valley app that, that played the arbitrage between Napa Valley grapes and people who, who, who buy them, like bulk grapes that, they're, that are used to make shitty wine. You know, one yep. was the farmers were on one side, the producer was on the other. And I just took 15% of both sides of the transaction. You know, these guys were, they, they had an arbitrage app, but didn't know what category to put it in. 
said, well, how about this? These two people don't <laughs> talk. And that was it, right? So lucky, networking, lucky, reading the room, all the things we talked about earlier. For fund two, which was a $23.75 million raise, I didn't know of another way to do it. I, I didn't choose the fund structure because, oh my God, I you can make fees and two and 20 and I didn't know any of that. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to raise money. It's true. I didn't know. I, I was in a tiger, my tiger group and, and they're like, well, what do you guys want to do during the pandemic? Like, oh, I don't know. Well, you know. And so like, you know, and everyone's like, I'm going to have a fund for real estate, which is so hot, so hot. Then I'm gonna have a fund for crypto, which was on fire. I'm gonna have a fund for solar also on fire. You know, I'm gonna have a fund for esports. You know, all these things. I remember that, all those things. Yeah, well, because they were all like COVID type things. Yep. And COVID like rocket ships. And I'm like, well, I'll do a booze fund. And that was it. And I went out just doing brands. In fun too, I went out just doing brands. I'm like, well, I have all this experience. Let me just buy brands. And I had a dickens of a time raising money. I think I raised 250000 or $500,000 in, in about two weeks, three weeks. And I'm like, and then I got like a dry spell. Like, uh, what am I going to, what's happening here? And then I led with the barrel strategy from fund one and did the portfolio company second. In the same fund or two separate funds? Same fund. You get 70% barrels, 30% brands. And, but I was going to market at 70% brands and 30% barrels. So I was talking about brands first. I was talking about the opportunity of brands and, liquor business and et cetera. And I couldn't sell anything. I couldn't raise money. So I switched it. And I raised like $10 million in the next two weeks. And then I raised another 10 million and, and here we are now at where we are, you know? But that's what it was. It was like one of those, when the universe talks, listen. And, and that's what it was. And I remember, I think being at home and talking to my wife and being like, this is hard. Raising capital is hard. And then she, in her great wisdom, was like, well, how are you pitching? She's a great salesperson from, uh, in healthcare. And she's, she's like, how are you pitching? I'm like, well, this is how I'm doing it. She's like, well, why don't you think about reversing those? Huh? Genius wife. I love you. you know? I like that. Yeah. And then here we are. I would have caught on eventually, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Disclaimer. I, I don't know either. I don't know either, but but I would have caught on, I'm hoping. But and here we are now. And you know, we are raising another 150 right now. We're in a raise. What surprised you most about raising capital from other people? The weight of it all. And I mean W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T. When you raise money from other people, you have an inherent responsibility to them. Can't fuck around. Can't bullshit. Can't speculate and guess. Because what you think is not a lot of money, quarter million, million, half million, whatever, 20 million in some instances, is a lot of money to someone else. And they will take you to the mat for it. You know, I didn't expect to feel the gravity of someone else's check. That was one thing. And then another thing was I didn't, Maybe it's the circles you're running, right? But I didn't, I didn't ever understand the ease of which people gave money away. Now I, I I came at this. I wasn't. I came at it successful already, so I wasn't like 
you know, I was writing my own checks, but I but I weighed these decisions heavily. And I remember meeting a guy, an investor of mine in my fund two and three, who I met him at a Starbucks in Deerfield, Illinois. Never met him before, never. And we talked for a half hour over like a black coffee and a latte. Really? True story. And he's like, well, what are you doing? What's the concept? How do I make money? How do I get it back? Well, that kind of conversation. Half hour, 40 minutes tops. At the end of the conversation, he reaches into his sweaty sock and pulls out a check for a million bucks and gives it to me. True story. And I remember getting in my car and calling my wife again, who's a, like, and by the way, behind every successful person is a great partner, a supportive partner that allows you the flexibility to make mistakes and not be judged for it. At least that's my story. I'm sticking to it. And whether she's listening or not, I still believe it, you know? And he pulled in his, he, he, he pulled this million dollar check out of his sock and his last words to me were, don't fuck me. And that was it. Never saw him again. And, and he's been an investor ever since. And so it, it, it reinforced to me the storytelling nature of what we do. And it reinforced to me the, the concept of be a good person your whole career because invariably someone will know someone. I can't expect this guy just gave me a million dollar check. He for sure did back research on me. He for sure asked questions about me, but he gave me a check at a Starbucks that smelled a little bit like mold. And those are just an example of like a few of the funny stories of, of raising capital. I've got, you know, I mean, the, the ultra rich do it different. You know, they, they bet the jockey all day and, and maybe the, maybe the horse race is good, but they bet the jockey. And so if you're ever raising money, it, it, it those relationships matter and how you speak to people and, and your track record, not in as an investor, but as a person, the track record matters. This is going to sound silly, but what do you think he meant by don't fuck me? Is that don't lose my money, don't screw this up, or is it really don't steal from me? It's the first two. It's the first two. It's not the third. It's don't fuck it up. I'm trusting you, Brian Rosen. Don't lose my money, Brian Rosen. Those are the, that's what, it, that's what he means. You know, he's been a great investor ever since. And he's, he's returned forex on his capital with me or gotten returns of that. And it turns out he didn't fuck him, you know? And yep. he's been a great referral for 10 other LPs of ours. So I just, I mean, what I'm really trying to illustrate is that life is like a track record. Everything you do is on that record. And if you, you know, it's funny how, again, it's the great equalizer of time. There are people that would, bully's the wrong word, but you'd have people in high school who would look at you and treat you differently for whatever reason. I'm not saying me in general. That same person that I taught, I treated differently or I was a schmo to or whatever, is now running kayak.com, right? The same guy who, who couldn't get a girl to save his life is running a multi-billion dollar company. You know, so you got to really be careful that the long tail of life doesn't come back at you. It goes back to what you said in the beginning of the conversation. You got to respect people for who they are, not Always. what they have, right? Was, well, it's my dad. And that's, you know, talk about full circle moment. Treat kings and paupers the same. True. My dad had a 
we had a, we, there's a poem by Rudyard Kipling called If, if you know it, free on Google. And he, in his way, would he taped, he did a full-size printout of the poem and taped it on a closet door outside the bathroom. So when you're sitting there in the bathroom and there were no phones and there, and I, there's no Time magazine, <laughs> there's no Sports Illustrated, right? All you have to do is look up and read this poem. And, it, and the poem was called If by Rudyard Kipling. And it was about if you can hang your head up high when all around you is failing. And then once more, you'll be a king, my son. Meaning, do the right thing. Be true to yourself and your vision. Be honest and articulate in what your goals are. And no matter how big the game is, whether you want to be a centimillionaire or a millionaire or a thousandaire or just live a life, if you can do those things, then your life is complete. So you're in Tiger 21. People have pitched you to raise capital. Having just said that, how would you advise someone to overcome a challenge in their track record? So we've just gone through COVID. We're going through a rate heightening cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to definitely impact a lot of real estate folks that might've been great jockeys, but got caught in a period of time. Maybe a little bit was in their control. Maybe it was out of their control. How would you advise someone to approach a track record that may have a blip in it? Well, if you're a real estate guy or having help you an office guy, you're going to have that. You're going to have that in your track record. Look, I, I, I think everyone, when the economy goes south or sideways, everyone's affected. No matter where you are, what station of life you're in, everyone is affected. When you're asking for money or selling deals or whatever you're doing, I think you have to acknowledge the obvious and acknowledge where you made a mistake and acknowledge how you've fixed. People are people and investors are forgiving. Now, they may not invest money with you, but they will respect what you've done in, in the pitch. And if you're caught long in real estate, and, and I, there are plenty of guys. I mean, I was at a conference in Dallas last week where, where at people were pitching capital for, they have a 80-floor office building that can't get out of the ground. <laughs> and that's going to happen. But again, life is a super long time. And it all happens in cycles. And I think investors are forgiving personally if you're open and honest about where you fucked up. And I think they're forgiving financially if there's money to be made and they're willing to take a risk with you as the fund manager or the, or the lead investor, the GP, if they can make money and you can provide a clear path. Now, the deal is going to cost you more, right? More points going to cost you more give. You can't be as rigid. You have to recognize that too. Where a two and 20 might be a, you know, a two and 15 now or a one and 15 kind of thing. You're going to have to update your deals, but it's shitty out there right now. And 2024 is going to be a tough year for people. And if you're in office or in real estate, you know, you talked about interest rate hikes. There's good indication the Fed's going to soften a little bit next year, but soften from eight to six is not soft because it came from two or one. Sofer's still strong. LIBOR, it's not really used as much, but it's still strong. I would not, I know you are, so forgive me. I would not want to be holding a ton of land, finished land. If it's just mud, you're okay. If it's finished and you're waiting for tenants, challenge. It could be challenging. Yeah, yeah. 
but nothing's forever. What did you do to your fund structures, seeing all of these funds through Tiger 21? And then also now you're on your fifth fund. Like how has your fund structure changed? And what do you think is the optimal setup now that, that you found? Is it two and 20? Is that your deal? It is. It's two and 20, 7% pref. Why do you give the pref? Why do I give it? Because well, why do you have it? Yeah. I have it because you can get 5.5 in a money market. You know, I've always given a pref. I think that, in fact, I probably gave it too early. You know, now you kind of have to give a preferred return because they can get, they can do nothing, have no risk and put their money in a treasury and let it earn 5.75 and get it access to it anytime they want or a muni. That's why we do a pref. But we're so confident in our returns that a pref is a, is a nominal thing, the nominal give because they're already really strong in the return profile. So my fund structure hasn't changed at all. It's been 70, 30, 70 barrels, 30 brands and support services since our fund two. Fund four was barrels only. And that was just a bridge fund to get to five. And here we are at five and, and the fund structure is, is back to 70, 30. And there's been a lot of consternation internally about, do we break off the 30 into a separate fund? an opportunistic fund, a venture fund, a growth fund. And so we have those discussions quite a bit, but I'll go back to that first story is when I was, when I led with brands, it's much harder to raise. When I led with barrels, it became much easier to raise. So I like the 70, 30 structure. I like the two and 20. I like the pref and the investors like the returns. What's your competitive edge on the barrel side? Besides Al Capone and my dad's bar mitzvah? Is that a big enough competitive edge? The competitive edge is three generations of relationships. That's the moat. The moat is you can go down to Kentucky right now and buy barrels. If you've got a check in your pocket, you can buy them. And two things are going to happen. One is you're going to go to the biggest contract distillers in Kentucky and you're going to say, hey, I'm so-and-so and here's $5 million. Great, Mr. So-and-so. I'll fill your barrels in 2027. That's your first moat. Now, let's say you're filled and there's a softness in the market and you want to get out and you're a private equity guy or you're Mr. So-and-so. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? You're going to call the procurement at Pernod Ricard, Diageo, Constellation, Stoli, AB InBev? You're not. You don't know them. So you're stuck. And if you're stuck in a trade, what happens? Price goes down because a trade will happen where price meets value. We don't have that problem. My competitive advantage is not only I can get filled right away and begin the process of aging right away, I can get out whenever I want. It's not always easy, but I can get out. And so those are huge advantages. From the brand side, we've got a team in our office of Molson Coors, people, Diageo, Constellation, Bacardi, Doers, Unilever, BMO, Honest Company, Nestle that work on the brands. So while the 95% failure rate is real, of the 5% that are gonna succeed, we've put together an all-star team of people to, to have the greatest likelihood of that success. That's a moat. Is the brand strat or the barrel strategy capped by supply or your ability to raise capital? The barrel strategy is Currently 
capped by supply currently because they're building distilleries all the time. My ability to raise capital globally is strong, well-documented. And returns bring investors out of the woodwork. You know, Miami's been very good to me. Arizona's been very good. Chicago, New York, Canada, Europe. Those have been very good kind of angles for us. Supply right now is limited. They're going to build into supply, but that, but you break ground, it's three years to build a distillery and it's three years to age the goods. So the kind of alpha we're getting right now is not a forever. There'll still be great gains there, like there has been since prohibition, but it will soften a bit in the next eight to 12 years. How big of a market is the cannabis beverage market? Well, it wasn't very big. It wasn't as big as I wanted it to be when we first got into can. In the farm bill that Congress passed was the legalization of the hemp derivative. Now that's what we're using. It's called Delta 9. And that's what we're using now in can in states where THC is not legal. Minnesota, Illinois, et cetera. And we've become the number one selling cannabis beverage in those states now, available at mainstream mass merge retailers. So can for a while, we got into can because we thought when Biden became president that the the legalization of THC would be eminent. He has not had a great, great uh, <laughs> success in passing that. More and more states come online every January 1st, but it has not happened. Can pivoted to this hemp derivative and sales have been, it's one of our best investments, can. And it will get bought again by Anheuser-Busch, by Miller Coors. The problem with cannabis is the THC version of cannabis is you can only sell it in the same state of where it's produced because of regulation. So for instance, weed is legal in Illinois. The plant that produces it has to be in Illinois. Weed's legal in California. It has to be legal in California. Whereas Goose Island beer, Chicago's hometown beer, is made in Brooklyn, you know, and then trucked around the country. And so hemp derivative allows us to scale distribution without scaling costs. It, it's a, what we like to say in the game, a mitzvah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. Looking back on your career, what would you have preferred to do more of and what would you have preferred to do less of? I don't have money changes. I would have preferred to be a better decision maker early in my career. That wasn't what you asked, but that's what I'm going to answer. I didn't make great decisions. I made emotional decisions. I acted emotionally. Now I think I act more thoughtfully. That comes with age and with a little bit of financial security. You know, you don't make decisions. Mm. You know, the one thing about making money gives you, I feel, and I say this to my kids all the time, it's not about the money because after a while, it doesn't mean much anymore. And I know it, I say it from a position of, of having it, right? So, I, so, so and it's probably an obnoxious comment. I don't mean it to be. I don't think so. I don't mean it to be. I don't. But what I say to my kids, and I'll share here, is what money gives you ultimately is the freedom of choice. You can make a choice. You can make a decision that's not critical, that every decision is not 
critical. Money gives you that freedom. And so when you have the freedom of choice, you can make slower decisions. You can make more thoughtful decisions. You can make better decisions. And I didn't act like that as a kid. And by a kid, I mean 30 negative or maybe 35 negative, you know, and now I do. I also think that I would probably smell more roses than I did, you know, take a little bit of time and appreciate the things that I'm doing or situations I'm in or even the little things. You know, I know there's like that scene in Pretty Woman where you're like, you take your shoes off and, and walk, feel the grass underneath your feet. And I know it's like this grandiose bullshit love story equivalent to Beauty and the Beast, right? But, but there's some, there's some truth to that. I didn't do a lot of that. I do it now, but I didn't do it then. And I wish I did a little bit, but again, you have many, many stages of life and they don't last forever. And each one is meant to do a different thing as it moves you kind of to the finish line. So I, I, I think, I don't know if I would change too much. What do you want to accomplish in the next three years? I want to be, I want my company to be globally regarded as the best beverage company in the world. We get some of that now, but not globally. I want to be that guy. And I want to make a lasting impact on the beverage business. I want people to say that, hey, I, I invested with this guy and he did right by me, or I took money from this guy as a portfolio company and they it really changed the direction of our business. Those are important to me. How much of your early business of, you know, sitting behind the counter and not wanting to stay behind the counter has an impact on your vision to be kind of remembered for leaving a lasting impact on the industry? Everything. Everything. I didn't want to be a cog in the wheel. I wanted to be the wheel. Always. And it's funny, my my father and and, and now he's you know he's 87 and he's got dementia and Alzheimer's and doesn't really remember anything, including myself. But a lot of the lessons he had said, or the not there were no lessons, a lot of the words he would say, the sentences, the phrases, they, a lot of them come back now and then. And and one of the things he said was when we were behind the counter and we would help people that would spend five or six, seven thousand dollars on burgundy or champagne or whatever. And meanwhile, we were we were living fat. You know, we were, we had all the shit. Yep. But he always thought of himself as poor. Always. He was a depression era guy. You know, he's born in 1936. So his early years, up to 10, 12 years old, was during, you know, where they were and they were they were broke. They were broke. You know, they, you know, four people in a, or five people in a two bedroom apartment on top of a pool hall in suburban, in downtown Chicago on Division Street. And he would say, when someone would come in and spend real money with us, he would say, they're different than us. He would say, he would, actually, the phrase was, the rich are different than us. And I never understood what he meant because I didn't think anyone was different from anyone. They're choosing to spend their money on, Champagne. We lived in a big fat house. We had, I had all the clothes I needed. I ate every meal. You know, I wasn't, not, I grew up better than he did and my kids grew up better than I did. And that always stuck with me that, that 
my father, this goes to being behind the counter. My father thought that we were less than because we were tradespeople. We were retailers. We weren't doctors, lawyers, financiers, brain surgeons. We weren't any of those things. We were peddlers. You know, we peddled booze. And that never sat well with me. And so by getting from behind the counter, creating the largest private equity fund in the space, creating multiple businesses, selling three of them to private equity firms, I've at least proven to myself that where you are at that moment is not your forever station. You know, and I take that very seriously and that would be the life lesson kind of for my career right now. And as as my career rounds the turn, the turnhouse, you know, I want to keep growing and I want to keep giving other entrepreneurs an opportunity to get from behind the counter. I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that's what's your favorite hotel? <laughs> wow. That's a great question. There are the standards, which I don't really go to. We do a lot of home rental, like private home rental that are in like clubs like Inspirato and things yeah. like that. And those have always proven to be great. As a as a younger guy, I would go to the peninsula quite a bit. I like the peninsula. The beds are really great. Which one? Well, I like Beverly Hills and I like Chicago and the New York one at 57th and 51st, 55th and 5th. Yep. All the rooms are really small. The best thing about a hotel is not, in my opinion, is not the name brand on the wall, but it really is the quality of the bed and the clean cleanliness of the bathroom. So if you, that's, those are my kind of my hotel must-haves. Love it. Thanks for going on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope uh, they found it to be a good use of your time. <laughs> this was interesting. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwarzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.